Welcome to episode 190 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot happening on the podcast this week, uh, and, and so we're skipping the news roundup. It was just too much to try to jam everything in. Uh, today, we have an interview with Senator Whitehouse, Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, uh, uh, who is a in many respects, a standard issue, uh, a liberal Democrat, but one who's very thoughtful and perhaps a little outside the standard mold on cybersecurity issues. Uh, and so we're talking to him about everything from uh, the FBI's difficulty getting into the Texas church shooter's phone to Russian election hacking and what Putin was actually trying to do to the NISP cybersecurity framework to uh, hackback and uh, uh, the ACDC Act, which you heard me uh, talk to Representative Gra- Graves about uh, uh, a week ago, uh, to uh, DHS, botnets, cyber inspector generals. Uh, it is a, uh, a, a terrific uh, tour de force uh, by Senator Whitehouse on all topics cybersecurity. Uh, so, uh, welcome, as always. It's lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I join me as we begin our interview with Senator Whitehouse. Well, we're here with Senator Whitehouse, two-term senator from Rhode Island, uh, former attorney general, former U.S. attorney, uh, uh, and representative of the only state that is 3% larger at low tide. Uh, this uh, little-known fact uh, that uh, Rhode Islanders are very proud of. Uh, so, I see well, a joke about that, but <laughs> I can spare it to you. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, it's great to have you here, uh, and uh, I thought I'd jump right in. We'll talk about several topics, but uh, the news of the afternoon is that the FBI is having some trouble getting into the Texas church shooter's phone. They're not revealing who made it because they don't want to uh, encourage crooks to buy that phone. Um, uh, But it raises the question again, which we've certainly heard from the Justice Department. Uh, I think uh, both Attorney General Sessions, the Deputy Attorney General, the head of the FBI have said we have to do something about encryption of phones. Uh, And uh, uh, Chris Ray, the uh, FBI director, said that half the phones they sees they can't get into now. Uh, What are the obligations of phone manufacturers in those circumstances? Um, Well, I think you quite readily get into circumstances in which lives either are at stake or are potentially at stake. So you would hope that their obligation would be to cooperate fully in trying to protect human life and property. Yeah, one of the the issues that comes up is most manufacturers of phones have an ability to update the phone if they choose to, and if they are willing to send a very specific update that's just good for one phone to uh, a criminal suspect's phone, uh, they could probably update it to undo the security. That was the case in the uh, uh, FBI versus Apple litigation. Um, do you think that's a solution, uh, either that people, companies should be adopting voluntarily or that the Congress ought to take up? Uh, I don't know, but I do think that... Um 
particularly when you're in a situation in which the government has been able to obtain a warrant mm-hmm. and a judge has signed off on the need for this information, uh, potentially even an emergency warrant, again, in a lives-at-risk situation, um, it's we're kind of now past the argument over whether uh, this is a good idea or not, and at that point they should do whatever they can to be fully cooperative, which would include preparing for that eventuality, I would think. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can imagine a situation in which a little girl gets scooped off her lawn and the last thing the neighbor saw was a white van driving away with her and the panicked parents rush into the house and they see there's her phone. And she's been texting On the kitchen right? table. Yeah. And it's a brick. They have no way to get any information out of it. You would want to know, had she been texting with somebody, was there some connection that would help other than a white van that disappeared, you know, an hour ago? And that could mean the difference between, you know, a an okay outcome and a disastrously horrifying outcome. And situations like that, you know, pile up, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an ordinary criminal. It could be a terrorist who wants to have a massive mass casualty uh, effect. So um, I think there needs to be a very serious conversation about this um, with those companies. Yeah, I... I, I, I Agree. It's it's sort of disappointing. They've they've locked themselves into a pretty um, determined position of opposition. Yeah, kind of doctrinaire position. Yeah. Well, um, it, why don't we take up a second area where Silicon Valley is bumping into uh, the rest of the country in in various ways, which is Russian election hacking. Uh, uh, and um, I guess there are really two sets of issues. It seems to me there. One, are Russian hackers going to actually blow up our election, try to swing votes in the the course of the election? And then uh, uh, are they going to do things around the election with trolling and ads uh, that we saw a lot of in 2016? Um, First, let me ask you about... I'd add a third, just before we get into it, which would be... Um, laying the groundwork for efforts um, to um, create uh, antagonism and difficulties at home for whoever the president is. And my belief is that a lot of what they did that purported to be an attack against the actual election machinery Uh was in fact an effort to leave breadcrumbs Ah. that after the election they could use as evidence to throw at their trolls and the websites and anybody who'd be fool enough to be suckered by them that, uh, and they expected Hillary Clinton to win, that Hillary Clinton was not a legitimate president and here are the breadcrumbs that prove that the election was hacked and that, you know, Trump didn't get a fair deal. So um, I think they're, they're very, very clever. It's not just about manipulating the public mood that leads up to election day it's about manipulating the public mood post election day just to try to raise hell in our democracy and disable us somewhat in being effective against their interests Well, that's 
pretty sophisticated. There really hasn't been an election since 2000 where the other side hasn't had dark visions of illegitimate uh, tampering with the election. With Obviously, we had the hanging chads, and then if you remember 2004, there was all this fuss about whether Diebold was you know, uh, in the tank for Republicans. And then in 2008, the, um, the Republicans lost, and they had dark visions about voter suppression in the military. The, the, the absentee ballots weren't getting delivered uh, and they thought they were going to win that vote. Um, so there's already been a kind of... Uh, there's a history of yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, Which so, makes things like John McCain saying uh, after he lost the race, the race is over, he's my president now too, so important. Yes. Um, and, and shows that there's actually a real um, national security component to having Americans uh, be willing to... Um, distinguish between reality and falsehood and bind together as a nation. You may not agree with me, but I think uh, John McCain should probably call Senator Clinton, uh, former Senator Clinton, and, and give her that speech. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about what the uh, uh, the electoral machinery, how we can secure the electoral machinery against that kind of an attack, an attack that says um, the Russians were in here. They could have changed the votes. We don't know, but we're, we have dark suspicions. And yeah. so since we lost, we think it's illegitimate. Well, that's hard to do because um, you're now having to kind of prove a negative. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of suspicion mongerers out there and a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. So there's a ripe... Uh, field to plant those seeds of dissent and uncertainty. So I'm I'm a little more uh, hopeful there because increasingly we've walked away from computer voting in the sense that uh, yeah. we don't have magic boxes that you where you just yeah. push a button and, and everything is supposed to happen automatically. We use paper ballots that yeah. are scanned exactly and that count very quickly and very reliably and if there really is a contest there's the paper ballot. Yeah. Uh, in fact I voted today and, and I, I I slid it in and it yep. dropped into a safe. Uh, I it was uh, uh, and you can audit those randomly if you choose, yep. if you're worried about it. Uh, I think it's a little more worrisome that our voter registration uh, data is computerized and pretty much has to be uh, because uh, unless we have lots of backups, including paper backups, there's a risk that you could have confusion at the polls with yeah. people saying, well, your name's not on the list, and people saying, well, I voted six times in the last uh, ten years. Of course it should be. And by the it's way, a, I've got to get to work in an hour, so yeah, exactly. if we can't sort this out, I yeah. can't vote. All right. But I think, you know, again, provisional ballots and uh, backups there make it uh, improbable that the uh, a foreign government could really disrupt the election. Uh, though uh, I, now, agree. Now I think the, the greater danger is that they leave breadcrumbs about having done that and they spin people up about having done that. Um, I think it's hard to actually technically take a vote and reverse it to yes. the other candidate on behalf of an individual. And I think that's... Um, not the key part of the Russian strategy. It's much more to just stir the pot and create mischief and um, uncertainty and um, 
Yeah, doubt and hate and division. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's really how they've kept, they've kept Putin in power. So uh, it's not surprising that they're pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, uh, what lessons do you draw from the hearings that have been held so far with uh, uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google about the fake accounts uh, and the ads and the trolling that uh, uh, seem to have a Russian origin? What can we be doing about that? What should Silicon Valley do about that? Well, I think um, they have made huge progress moving from, hey, we just offer a platform. And whatever comes over it, we have no responsibility for. All of the companies denied that they were still at that place. They I, now I, understand I, that there's some called that. This is this reference you'll, you'll, this is the reference you'll know. I've, I've called that the Magaziner consensus uh, because it was the report that I read. Magaziner did at the end of the Clinton administration that said pretty much that this is just too wonderful to touch. We should all uh, allow these platforms just to grow without any government regulation. And I think that's kind of coming apart. They've they've the platforms themselves no longer believe that, which is I think a very important step. The analysts who we had on after the uh, company representatives uh, used the phrase that a tiny fraction of the Russian mischief is actually presently being engaged with by these companies. Mm -hmm. They either haven't really drilled down to find out where it all is and how bad it was, or the responses that they put together only address uh, a fraction of... Uh, the harm uh, that was done. So the good news is they're taking this on, and I think taking this on seriously. The bad news is I think they have a long way uh, to go to really get their arms around this problem. Um, I think the next things that we ought to be doing are starting to ask them for some metrics. Mm -hmm. What does success look like? We all know that you're not there yet. You're going to want to stop, I think perhaps before other people are comfortable. So let you tell us, what does success look like? When can you say, we've done the job, we've cleaned up our platforms, we are not an avenue for hostile intervention in American elections? So I think that's an important question that is pending out there post the uh, hearing, and they've got some time to answer that question you know, in writing mm -hmm. for the record. So that's of interest. I'm also a, a fan of uh, Lindsey Graham's notion that a, uh, a special commission come together and take a look at this. This is very specialized stuff. It is very complicated stuff. And with all that we've got going on in Congress, um, I think the idea that we can have a truly uh, expert group that can think this through hard and give us some recommendations is a good idea. Yeah, I, I think it does make sense. Uh, there, there's clearly... Now, one of the reasons that the platforms are coming around is uh, they're not anybody's uh, favorite industry anymore. The, on the right, there's widespread suspicion that political correctness uh, leads to uh, uh, conservative voices getting suppressed. And on the left, there's a feeling that they helped to cost uh, Hillary Clinton the election. Um, so it is. Uh, but it, I think one of the questions that will come up is, um, if we are now moving past the magazine or consensus to ask the platforms to suppress certain speech, to filter, uh, to avoid certain consequences, are we then going to say 
and whatever they decide to do is their First Amendment rights. So if they choose to say uh, from now on certain voices just aren't going to be heard, are we going to just say, well, whatever you want? No, I think it is something that Congress needs to look at, but I think it's such a nascent issue that to ask us to legislate in a comprehensive way from a standing start on short notice yeah. is a prescription for uh, disaster. And that's why I think an intermediate step uh, like Lindsay's commission could be very useful at teeing these issues up uh, more thoughtfully and more responsibly than Congress on its own would do. Is he also a co-sponsor of the Honest Ads Act? I can't remember now. That, that, no. That's, no, okay. So that's a, that's a relatively rifle-shot approach to the problem of just saying, well, if, you, if you've got a foreign government buying an ad in an election, it, it needs to be disclosed. Yeah, and what are the chances that Vladimir Putin is going to buy the election under that rubric? Yeah, I mean, bad enough. enough that some of them were dumb enough to pay in rubles. Now they've learned that lesson. <laughs> but with America also being the home of Shell corporations to the world, um, as the EU and the UK are cleaning up their uh, Shell Corporation Act, um, it just is so easy for somebody to do even a like Russian doll of three or four chain uh, shell corporations. And by the time you're done trying to drill through the first one, I mean, you never get to see who the who the party in interest is behind them. And if it's Vladimir Putin, he just sits there snickering, having used our own laws against us. Right. So um Cybersecurity more generally, you've, you've had a lot to say about this. You've been a leader and an early, had an early focus on cybersecurity. Um, one of the things that you've been asking about, and I heard you when I was up at uh, Brown for the Executive uh, Cybersecurity Master's uh, Program, uh, and you gave a talk, you said uh, that you were not completely convinced that the NIST cybersecurity framework was doing the job or could carry the weight of actually uh, allowing uh, government to insist on better cybersecurity for itself and, and from critical industry. Correct. When our bipartisan legislation failed, never even came to a vote ultimately, unfortunately, um, the fallback was to have the executive branch do it on its own in this NIST Homeland Security framework process emerged to deal with the problem of, of uh, critical infrastructure. And probably the most critical infrastructure of all is our electric grid, because mm-hmm. so much else depends on it. And um, corporate folks involved in that particular NIST framework process have warned that we in Congress should not be counting on that NIST framework process to be providing adequate cybersecurity in the electric grid space. Mm -hmm. So if that's true of the electric grid space, which is probably the most important, it's probably true in other places as well. So I think we at least, at least, need to test the proposition whether the NIST framework has produced these results. It has not yet been red teamed, beta tested, stress tested, whatever you want to call it. And I think that should be a first order of priority. So much of the Trump executive order is directed towards trying to get government agencies to also have to go through the NIST process. But if the NIST process isn't working for the grid, we need to know that now rather than just pile more stuff into it. Yeah. So I... I think of the framework as exactly that. It is a 
a shared vocabulary for talking about how good your security is, but it it doesn't purport to say it's got to be this good. Uh, it just says um, you should have some mechanism for identifying malware that's coming onto your network. Um, we're not going to tell you what that mechanism is, but once we've agreed that you should have some mechanism, we want you to tell us what your mechanism is. Uh, that's that's not a regulatory mandate. That is a, a shared vocabulary. Yeah. And um, if, as I strongly suspect, it is not producing cybersecurity adequate to the threat, particularly in absolutely vital areas like uh, the electric grid or our financial services mm-hmm. infrastructure, you don't actually have to take down a bank to start a run on a bank. You remember yes. just the little penny that right. uh, um, the little girl couldn't get out right. of the bank and Mary Poppins took yes. it down. If you if the public lose confidence that their bank statements are accurate, yeah, you could create all sorts of turmoil. So, all, in, all in, particularly in those areas, you need you, you, we really need to have a solid review of whether of where we are, mm-hmm. so that we can then decide what steps further need to be taken. But I'm convinced that Congress needs to act to solve this problem, and I'm uh, very uh, sorry that at the moment there seems to be zero impetus for that, none whatsoever from the administration and spread across all the various committees that this touches. It's hard to get it going without an administration catalyst. Yeah. Well, we've had three administrations in a row, and I was was in one, uh, where you could have taken their descriptions of what they thought needed to be done and shuffled them and not been able to tell who's which. Which was which, Yeah. yeah. This is a very nonpartisan area, and you get groups like CSIS who have repeatedly been providing very good advice to incoming administrations of whatever uh, political stripe. And if you look across time, their recommendations have been pretty similar as well, and they weren't designed for a Republican administration or a Democratic administration. They were designed for whoever the next administration is. So I, they, they, I see then your, your, your view of the cybersecurity framework is we need to have a cross-cutting, comprehensive approach to what needs to be done and then start insisting on doing something more than we're doing now. At least looking at the electric utility grid piece, since right. that's an example um, already, and saying, okay, let's take a real hard look at this. Is it working? Do we have the cybersecurity we need? And if not, we obviously can't count on it, so what else do we need to do? And that's the important question. So you've also talked about the idea that maybe there's a way to test um, our cybersecurity by using a cyber inspector general or yeah. a core of people who could penetration test. Uh, uh, how would that work? Well, I think that there should be some entity that assures that at least the civilian agencies of government are adequately Uh, protecting the information that is in their custody. It gets a little complicated when you're asking the group to take a run at the Defense Department or at our intelligence community. So let's set those aside, Mm -hmm. perhaps even FBI and DOJ. But for the other ones, um, it, I think, would have been useful if somebody in the government had known that the Office of Personnel Management couldn't keep track of the SF-86 forms mm-hmm. that people fill out when they're applying for security clearances and that the Chinese had access to them. Right. And that's determinable. 
if you have somebody who has the authority to go in and do white hat, good guy penetrations just to test, you know, push the door open yep. and see if it opens. And um, we really don't have that, and it's hard to develop it across 73 different inspectors general. And it's also hard to develop both the esprit de corps and the reputation that this is the hot place to go for cyber right. if it's spread across 73 agencies. So I don't care if it's an inspector general or if it's a function of the government uh, accountability office or if it's something that's in the National Security Council. What I care about is that there be an office that is tasked with testing the proposition that all of these agencies assert that they've got this under control. And uh, I think we'd learn a lot. We certainly would have learned a lot with OPM, yes. and we would have saved ourselves potentially a lot of trouble. So what about DHS? They they are formally in charge of the civilian sector uh, uh, of government and have been especially in this administration, getting more authority uh, to... Uh, they, they put out their first binding guidance saying get rid of Kaspersky. Uh, uh, they're clearly stepping up somewhat. Do you see them as potentially a house for this? Um, conceivably, the problem that uh, Homeland Security has is that its reputation in Congress isn't that great. Mm-hmm. And there are some very uh, important folks on the other side of the aisle in the Senate who have a very suspicious uh, point of view about uh, Homeland Security, you know, not being able to manage its budget and its building and all the different agencies that are under its control and a couple of uh, bad transporta- uh, transportation security experiences thrown in and <laughs> you know, it sort it of piles up to uh, <laughs> having... Um, I think there's probably a way, and uh, what we've talked about in the past is trying to assure that there's as much protection Right. for the cyber function from the general morass of the Homeland Security mm-hmm. Department so that it can do its own purchasing, it can do its own right. HR work, it can do its own hiring and firing. It can be in it but not of it necessarily, and you don't get snarled in all of its bureaucracies. That, that does make some sense. Uh, um, I, I want to uh, suggest that you should take a close look at bug bounty programs, which pull an existing set of private sector hackers uh, and uh, uh, encourage them with cash uh, prizes yeah. if they can if they can break into uh, uh, particular parts of civilian infrastructure and you have to it takes a lot of work to design those programs but once they're designed it's probably less expensive than trying to hire your own penetration testers yeah could very well be you just want to make sure you've licensed them first because you don't want somebody to be doing this and then when you're and then you caught, discover, yes. they're caught red-handed, and they say, oh, no, 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 I was just going for the bounty. I wasn't trying to hack into your grid. What a terrible thought. Yeah, right. So uh, one other uh, uh, cybersecurity, uh, two other cybersecurity issues that I want to cover, and then we, we'll, we can wrap up. Uh, botnets and whether people should be allowed, companies that are under attack should be allowed to take investigative action outside of their networks. And they're tied together yeah, a little. They are a little. Uh, botnets have essentially no redeeming social value, as we <laughs> used to say in another context. Um, and we've heard over and over again this from national security witnesses. In fact, the uh, questioning of the uh, three companies on the social platforms was exactly to the same effect. No, they're a menace. We right. have, there's, no go- there's no good in them. The problem is that the legal authority to go after botnets depends on them either being a national security threat or a threat of criminal fraud. Mm-hmm. And if they're just sitting there latent 
and haven't been used yet, it's hard to prove that. So what you'd like is the authority to have a unit in the Department of Justice go out all the time and just be like the guy mowing the lawn who clears the Internet as much as you can of botnets. It's a legal proceeding because once you figure out how to do it, you go into court and you notify the service provider and they come into court and they say, here's a bot, here's how we're taking it down, Your Honor. Uh, we've given please, proper please, notice. Please tell us when, that we're acting legally. Yeah, and when they've got the chop, the company is uh, covered and happy to proceed. Everybody is fine. And if perchance the malicious actor behind the botnet does show up in court, so much the better because you have somebody there with handcuffs and you can continue yes. <laughs> uh, in other law enforcement means with them. So uh, that's a pretty simple fix that we ought to uh, be able to um, to accomplish. And that's one where... Often the private sector, Microsoft has led the way on a lot of this, uh, yeah. goes in and says, we know there's a botnet. Yeah. We want the authority yeah. to take action against them because they're using our trademark in yeah. some of their uh, malware. Um, if you're a lawyer, if you suffer from the disability of being a lawyer, as I do, and you go back and you look at the initial Microsoft complaint that they went forward with on their own to enable them to shut down some uh, malicious behavior that was affecting uh, their service, it's really pretty impressive to see. It's everything from the very latest uh, statutes on this yes. to the most ancient 14th century common law doctrines, and it's just a it's a it's a very interesting. Read and, and it was very good work done early on yeah. by Microsoft. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, this has I, I have drawn from that the lesson that we should get the private sector more involved in investigating these attacks, yeah. and that people ought to be able, under government supervision with limitations on the harm that they're allowed to cause without uh, uh, being liable. But we ought to let people say, "I am under attack. I know where my stolen data is. I'd like to yeah. go there." Yep, I agree, and um, part of our problem right now is that if you are in that situation, there's nowhere that you can go in government to get the permission to proceed. Right. And you may very well be fouling up uh, DOD's cyber command equities. You may very well be... Uh, in an area that NSA is concerned about. It could be the Department of Justice and the FBI who investigate a lot of this stuff are interested in what you're doing and want to know about it. And, of course, there's old Homeland Security always mm-hmm. uh, involved. So where's the data po- the gateway where all those different equities can be heard? We haven't set that up. We ought to. There ought to be a place where you can go and at least apply for a license to do that. Right. And the fact that we can't, uh, set that up, I think, is a mistake uh, on the part of uh, government. This is, I think, pretty obvious. It may be that we find out that it's a very rare occasion right. when it's allowed. It may be that we find out that it's a very rare activity mm-hmm. that's allowed, but we at least ought to be having a thoughtful conversation about this, and the way you have that thoughtful conversation is by putting somebody in charge of being able to say yes right. or no. No, I think that's exactly right. We, we, the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act um, was, in a sense, um, uh, uh, technology-proofed by setting this very broad standard that says uh, it's illegal to do something that causes harm if you're not authorized to be on the network. And uh, authorized to be on the network is said essentially meant do you own it or have you been given permission? Uh, and that's been... 
a very a, a concept that has withstood a lot of technological change, but it practically boils down to don't do bad things with computers. And if you're going to write something as broad as that, you have to have a mechanism for allowing people to find out what things are bad in the view of the U.S. government. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's a conversation that I think deserves to be had. Um, most of the victims of uh, cybercrime are uh, not government. They're private. Most of them are, I would surmise, uh, at least the serious cybercrime corporations, banks that are being robbed or mm-hmm. uh, companies that are having their intellectual property stolen from them. And um, a healthy conversation with a referee to say, no, you can't do that. Um, but the, I think there's a lot of, of uh, urgency and power in the private sector to say, please let us try to do this. And so it's not like if you had that door for somebody to come knock on that nobody would come knocking. I think there'd be a line of eager customers, and it would create a very useful and potentially very valuable conversation and result. Yeah. So you've been a prosecutor. You know if you're a prosecutor, you don't like to give people exemptions from criminal law. And I suspect that's a big part of DOJ's resistance to this up to now. It could be. It's also, I think, that you don't have a very good sense of once things start caroming around the Internet, where they end up. Right. So the clever hackback that uh, some company designs to counter the uh, measures that are being taken against it could end up ricocheting off into some unforeseen place and doing harm there. And um, sorting through those technical details, I think, is an important part of the question, not just a question of, hey, we're from law enforcement, we'll take care of this, we don't want you involved. Right. Um, So last question, I know you don't uh, want to get into details on 702 because you haven't had hearings yet, uh, uh, but we are coming up on December 31, the 702 FISA program won't last if it isn't uh, reauthorized. Uh, uh, What's your sense about uh, how the politics of that are shaping up in the policy? I think it's virtually certain to be reauthorized. Um, although we haven't had our public hearings on it, we did have a closed session in which uh, the Attorney General and uh, the DNI and uh, some of our counterterrorism folks all came in to explain why this was important. I think everybody gets it. Um, I do think there are some issues about the terms and conditions of access to the collected information that is in computers and um, potentially accessible to law enforcement and to national security folks. I think that's really the dominant issue here. Right. And I think there are uh, definitely ways to work through those issues to everybody's satisfaction. Um, But even if uh, a simple, flat reauthorization were put on the floor, I suspect it would pass with more than 60 votes anyway. Well, that would be great. Better better to hear these things out and try to come to a resolution that brings everybody together. All right. Well, I I certainly hope you're active in it because I think you have the ability to uh, uh, bring uh, moderates on both sides of the aisle together on a really important program. Yeah, I hope so. And, of course, prosecutors have had the experience of knowing that when you're uh, on a wiretap, Every minute 
you are listening to the other side of the conversation as well. Yes. You get the wiretap for the mobster, but, you but get- you're listening when he calls his sister, when he calls the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all of that. And we have ways of protecting those private interests, and those are being matched on the uh, um, uh, international side with uh, 702. Um, But the fundamental premise that because somebody who you don't have a warrant uh, for is on the phone with somebody who you have a legitimate reason to be surveilling, um, I think a lot of people aren't as familiar with that as people who have lived in that world of surveillance and search warrants and wiretaps and all of that. Yeah, I, I think that is right. Uh, we accommodate the reality of what it would mean to do a wiretap uh, and what we have to do, and we'd have to pick up both sides of the conversation. Uh, and now people have started to forget that uh, as they look at uh, national security wiretaps. Yeah. Well, Senator, this has been terrific. I really My pleasure. It. Thank and, you so much uh, for doing this with I me. I will uh, hopefully see you up at uh, uh, the Bristol uh, Fourth of July parade, good. if nothing else. Good. <laughs> well, here's to a successful 702 and a good cyber bill right behind it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks to Senator Whitehouse for that wide-ranging and self-confident uh, discussion of a whole host of cybersecurity issues. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been Episode 190 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. I'm your host, Stuart Baker. Uh, please uh, tune in. Uh, because tomorrow we will be sending you the results of our interview on election security, something that Senator Whitehouse covered in some detail, uh, uh, at the first live uh, interactive cyber uh, law podcast at Steptoe & Johnson. So we hope you'll join us for that uh, and for future episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 